for joining me, Pete Holterman, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Jennifer Carper, who has an extensive portfolio working with agencies to provide brand marketing, sponsorship, and consumer engagement expertise. Her career includes work with global companies at a wide variety of events. Just one example is helping Mercedes-Benz land the naming rights to the New Orleans Superdome. Because when you know that the lineup is at the time a BCS championship, a Super Bowl, a Final Four, those three properties in the first 18 months of the deal and the impressions and the awareness that they were going to get from a media standpoint easily justified it. There have been plenty of other successes along the way for Jennifer, but it has been important for her to keep her focus from wavering. Um, we're in a service business, so I'll start with that. And that's something that we always need to remember on the agency side is we are there to service. It is not about us. It is about them. Because the moment you start thinking it's about us or me and you start believing your own press, you are not going to do a good job for your clients. Jennifer credits much of her success to the network she has developed sports is a business of relationships. And, you know, your reputation really precedes you and you need to be aware of that. She also stressed how important it is for agencies to find their lane and master it. I don't like it when I see companies out there saying, oh yes, we can do this and we can do this and, we, and you know they can't. Doing what you do well is important and not trying to be everything to everyone is also important. And Jennifer has built teams that will work together to deliver success for clients. You always want to say, oh, but we want it to be fun. To me, the fun comes from job well done. While you listen, visit credentialsonly.com for show notes that include more information on what we discuss in this episode. And please take a moment to leave a review wherever you access podcasts. Without further ado, Credentials Only presents sports marketing veteran, Jennifer Carper. Please enjoy this conversation. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining me here on Credentials Only. You have an unbelievable career in, in sports marketing. I can't wait to talk about it. But your start in the industry is very unique. What did you major in? <laughs> That's always probably one of the most uh, interesting answers for people. Um, I actually majored in Chinese. Um, I think I was a little bit ahead of my time, given when I went to college, which was <laughs> quite a long time ago. Um, but I majored in Chinese. I was a person who was always interested in different languages. And my logic as a 17-year-old going to college was simple that, well, there's a billion people in China and you got to be able to sell them something. And literally, that was how I came to my decision. So <laughs> that is, <laughs> that's the story. <laughs> and then it takes another twist with what you did immediately after graduation. What did you do? I did. So when I graduated from college, I had been a swimmer at the University of Arizona. And um, if you know anything about athletes who swim, they have no time at all to do anything else except be in the pool and train. So when I graduated from college, I had zero work experience. I had never had an internship. I had never had a job. I had never babysat. <laughs> I had never <laughs> literally done anything except swim. And so I decided that I was going to buy a plane ticket and move to Hong Kong and try to find a job. And I would stay until I either ran out of money or got a job, whichever came first. 
first and didn't know what I was going to do. Um, Hong Kong, obviously known very much for the world of finance. Um, but oddly, I landed in sports marketing in Hong Kong. I have no idea how, but I did. <laughs> so <laughs> That was not the goal when you went there but you wound up getting a job. How did you find this job? And then what did you, what did you do to start your career in sports marketing? Uh, you know, it was more when I got over there it was just, you know, I knew a couple of people. I was staying with a family. So family, friends, friends. So not people my family knew, but uh, people close to us knew. And basically just kind of pounded the pavement, was kind of looking more in the advertising side of things at first. And, you know, got wind of a, a locally based sports marketing company that was run by a father and son who happened to be British. Because um, at the time, Hong Kong was still under British rule when I was there. And um, got in touch with them. And really, I think just my background being an athlete was probably why I got the job. And I worked in marketing and sales. And, you know, we did some very interesting events over there from you know, professional tennis to the Hong Kong Dragon Boat Festival. I mean, it was kind of ranged like a lot of different types of events, you know, some more culturally based like the Dragon Boat Festival, and then some, you know, big high profile events like professional tennis. So. And you get your start, you come back and go to work with the PGA. What was your role there? My role there um, was a job at the time that was called on-site promotions. Um, the job, I think, has a different name now, but what we did was um, you were assigned to a tour, and at the time it was called the Senior Tour. Now it's called the Champions Tour. I was assigned to the Senior Tour, and I was, you know, 24 years old <laughs> at the time, and Basically, what we did is we went out and we executed all of the marketing programs for all the tours, corporate partners. So if AT&T had phones in the locker room, you know, we made sure the phones were working for the players or Merrill Lynch had a program called the Merrill Lynch Shootout. We literally would organize that entire event. It was a special event that involved players and their customers, um, but anything to do with their marketing partners as well as running all of the electronic scoreboards and doing all the statistics um, for the tournament. So each week, you know, it was a combination of marketing, but then it was kind of, we had a tech support staff, but it was training volunteers how to sit at the greens. It was training um, the, you know, the, the walking scorers on how to input scores and how to keep stats and all these different things. And it was a little bit archaic. It's, it's a lot more sophisticated now. Um, but, you know, it was like the original technology of, you know, integration with television and, you know, all those stats and scores had to be right. And that was part of the job that um, we trained all of the thousands and thousands of volunteers that we came across um, over the course of a, you know, senior tour season on how to do this. But I will say that at one of the tournaments, I want to say it was, I want to say it was somewhere in Texas. Um, and as you can imagine, a lot of the volunteers are older, they might be retired. And I apparently make an impression on my volunteer meetings, because throughout the course of the week, a couple of the older gentlemen kept calling me the dragon lady. <laughs> <laughs> 
So apparently, I mean, I, they did their job correctly, so I guess it worked. But I was from then on known as the Dragon Lady, <laughs> so, and, which and, might still and, fit today. <laughs> so. And that's quite the roadshow then for you to be mm -hmm. on that Champions Tour, taking the Dragon Lady uh, out to all these different <laughs> markets. How much time were you on the road for that? Uh, I was on the road between 26 and 30 weeks a year. And, um, and in my off time, we weren't really obligated to um, spend a lot of time at the tour offices. So a lot of people who did this job lived in other locations, but I, you know, lived in Ponte Vedra. So I'd go in occasionally, but we didn't have a huge obligation because we were, we spent so much time on the road and obviously the hours were very long out there. Um, but it was a great start. And I spent, I want to say two years on the senior tour. And then I moved to the PGA tour for about a year and a half um, before leaving the tour. And, um, you know, it was, it was interesting. It was a job that had been really easy to stay in, um, to be honest with you, because it was fun and you met a lot of people, but it was, it was definitely time to move on at that point and go on to bigger and better things. And what came next for you? <laughs> what came next? So <laughs> oddly, um, as you know, in Ponte Vedra, both the, the PGA Tour and the ATP are both headquartered there. And I had gotten wind of the fact that Mercedes-Benz had signed a global partnership with the ATP Tour and was talking to some people at the ATP that I knew about what opportunities and you know what was going on with that and learned that it was being managed by an agency out of Germany. And through various introductions, I ended up meeting the owner of the agency. He uh, had come over to Ponte Vedra for meetings. And given that this uh, sponsorship operated in over 50 countries um, throughout the course of, I think, I think I worked on it for 13, I think it was 13 years ultimately, um, he, they needed a presence over this side of the world because to operate all of the all of the events out of Europe really wasn't terribly efficient. And there was a lot of events in the United States. There was numerous events in South America. And so uh, I ended up getting hired to open up a US company on their behalf and manage the ATP sponsorship for Mercedes-Benz in North America, South America, uh, New Zealand and Australia. So I, I think I did pretty good on the territories, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, I, didn't mind, I didn't mind those trips to New Zealand. I've got to be honest. I did a lot of hiking. Um, but I did that for a long time and then slowly built up um, the agency business in the United States to include additional work, um, both from Mercedes-Benz domestically in the United States and, and a few other clients. And um, that was that. I want to say that lasted, I don't know. There was twists and turns because through the process, ultimately the, the German agency was acquired by Omnicom. I got folded into another group. I ended up running another agency, but it was all still, it all came through the same path. Um, but I managed the ATP tour sponsorship for its duration, um, which was, like I said, I think it was 13 years. And, um, and then had a, a lot of other business at the time. So, um, yeah, that's the story. And, and the ATP business is obviously a pretty good cornerstone from which mm -hmm. to start. But 
you are going all over the world and the tennis schedule has absolutely no quit to it. It, it is a constant year round sport. How do you then find the time to grow and, and not just add the other clients, but do the research of who else is out there and find those people? What's that process like? Well, you know, at some point I added um, a staff person to split the schedule with because it just, it was too much. I mean, it was, it was overwhelming, the amount of time and the amount of effort. It was, it was more demanding than even what I did with the PGA Tour because at the PGA Tour, when I came home, I was kind of off. When I came home with this job, I was in the office every day. And so as I grew the business and I, I really, what I did was I grew the business significantly with Mercedes-Benz USA and started not just doing tennis for them, but getting involved in numerous other projects, whether that be other sports um, properties that they were involved with or lifestyle, but it was a small gradual build. And kind of at that time when Omnicom acquired our agency, the business was, was quite significant and um, that's why I was asked to head a newly formed agency, which I took probably 15 people from another agency they gave me and a, you know six or seven from another agency. And they all came under an agency that they asked me to run because the business with Mercedes was so big. Um, and then Omnicom, we were sitting under GMR marketing at the time. And with that, that just came, you know, with some other opportunities, potentially with conflict clients that they had um, and business was filtered our way that they couldn't necessarily take, but we were a separate entity. And so that was really how we spent time building the business. And I think when that was all said and done, we probably had about 30 people working in the company. The agency was called Sage Collective. We probably had about 30 or so, 30, low 30s um, number of employees. So, and you mentioned the lifestyle piece, and one of the ones that I know was a big project for you was the involvement in fashion weeks and yes. some in New York and Los Angeles and Miami. It's really it's not sports, but there is so much similarity. How closely related are these big lifestyle events to a sporting event? Well, I would say initially, because um, at the time when we got involved in Fashion Week, it was moving from um, Fashion Week in New York was owned by the CFDA, the Council of Fashion Designers of America. It was in the process of being sold the event itself to IMG. So you were going from a nonprofit organization running it to a for-profit organization running it. Um, and obviously IMG with their massive background in sports and entertainment was going to do things differently than a, the CFDA. So that was, an, that was an interesting process. But what I can say is sports um, at the time and, and probably even to this day is just infinitely more sophisticated um, in how they put on and run events. Um, you know, the world of sponsorship and media and all these things was very, very new to, the, to fashion designers. I mean, fashion designers, their entire focus is creativity. They're always, you know, thinking ahead. You know, it is just this constant evolving. And one of the most challenging things about working um, as a, with, you know, with sponsors specifically in fashion is you have two seasons a year. You have fall, uh, fall and you have spring. 
And as a sponsor, you have to evolve just as the designers are evolving. You can't just keep putting the same thing out there. You know, no matter what your product or service is, you had to be thinking so far ahead, what are the trends? What are the colors? What are, I mean, it was, you had to think like a designer in order to, from a sponsorship standpoint, to stay relevant. Because it wasn't, you know, maybe at a tennis tournament that was once a year, maybe you didn't really need to change all that much because it had been a year since anyone had seen you. And it's not like sports were notorious for evolving uh, creatively. Whereas fashion, that was probably the toughest part of the job was that constant evolution from a creativity standpoint and how could you outdo yourself? What designer partnerships could you, you know, work on? How could these designers help support your business? And just making sure you weren't just a name on a backdrop or on a wall or you, you needed to be more than that because otherwise the fashion community would not accept you. And Mercedes-Benz has been involved in a wide variety of events here, but while you were still with them, they took on the naming rights of the Superdome in New Orleans. What was your involvement, if any, in that process? And that I would imagine is very different than even the title sponsorship of a major golf or fashion or tennis event. Yeah. You know, it was an interesting process mostly because, um, there was a pre-existing relationship between Mercedes-Benz USA and the owner of the New Orleans Saints, Tom Benson, because he was also a dealer. And so he had been involved um, because he owns a franchise, um, or maybe, I think it's one, but it's certainly one Mercedes, but multiple auto franchises. And so he had a pre-existing relationship um, with the management at Mercedes-Benz USA. And when the state of Louisiana um, granted um, the Superdome rights to sell it because they were the ones that had to grant the rights because prior to Mercedes-Benz, there had never been a naming rights. It was a very casual, you know, hey, we're going to set up a meeting with the, C the CEO of Mercedes-Benz and, you know, everybody knew each other. Um, and ironically, um, in the very beginning, when they came in and pitched. I was in the pitch meeting where the saints came in and made the proposal to Mercedes Benz. And I would say it, they did an unbelievable job. I mean, just professional. It, it was a great opportunity. And when they walked in, but there was no price tag on it. I, I, the initial <laughs> proposal. Um, so that was the, that was the funny part. And, you know, they ultimately leave and, and the CEO asked me, he's like, well, what do you think? And I said, they did a fantastic job. I said, but why does the third most recognizable brand in the world need to put their name on an NFL stadium? Like check the box already. That's what, that's what naming rights gives you is brand awareness. Well, when you're third most recognizable <laughs> brand in the world, why do you need to put your name on the stadium? And I and so it wasn't that I was against it, meaning like I didn't like it. I mean, it was a great proposal. It's a great organization, um, but it didn't make any sense to me for the brand. Um, but through, you know, relationships and negotiations on price, um, there does become a number where it makes sense because when you know that the lineup is at the time a BCS championship, a Super Bowl, a Final Four. Those three properties in the first 18 months of the deal and the impressions and the awareness that they were going to get from a media standpoint easily justified it. 
<laughs> so, so while theoretically from a marketing standpoint, um, it, it wasn't something that I was in favor of just, I mean, we're just talking business. It, it was nothing but a business suggestion from me. You know, I, it wasn't because I didn't like football. I love football, like everything. Um, but just, it didn't make any sense because of what their brand awareness was and is. Um, but ultimately, you know, they did the deal and I think it's, you know, they have, have a great relationship and the saints, um, and, and now Gail Benson, it's a fabulous organization. So as the kind of third party to this, you need to go in and really assume so much knowledge about Mercedes and learn their business, but their brand and their, what they're trying to do. How do you do that as that outsider to get that deep knowledge, integral knowledge of that brand you're working with? Well, I think one of the nice things is, is that um, the group, you know, specifically, and I can talk more about the U.S. arm, um, because that was really who I worked most closely with over the course of 15 plus years. Um, they really allowed us to become part of the team. So I would give them all the credit um, for allowing us to be representatives, allowing us into their sort of inner circle um, they allowed us to have staff inside their building, attending internal meetings, you know, helping them put together reports and just everything that they needed. Um, there wasn't really a big differentiate. I mean, yes, we, we were employed by different people, but I would give 100% all of the credit to them for allowing us to become so integrated and know about their business and, you know, that extended also, you know, I think to their ad agency and their digital, digital agency, everybody worked really well together. And we knew the common goal. We all believed in and, you know, would lay on the railroad tracks for the brand. And everybody just, it was kind of ride or die. You know, this was what we did. And so um, I, I learned an incredible amount, you know, about the business. And then even being out at the events and being out there with the dealers, um, because the dealers, they're in the, you know, it's franchised and they have their own businesses to run. And, you know, we understood what their pain points were as well. So we were trying to serve a lot of masters, but because we were on the front lines with customers, with dealers, with management, we saw all sides of it. And that just, I think that's what made it, it, it successful and made it a good relationship. We could probably fill an entire conversation simply on this one subject, but I do want to touch briefly on negotiation. You mentioned that in, mm -hmm. in part of that naming rights agreement. What have you learned over the years about negotiation that would probably be the most valuable lessons to share? Um, you know, I've done a, negotiations on numerous sponsorships across sports and, and lifestyle. And what I will always say is, you know, particularly sports, I mean, all of them, but really sports is um, a, a business of relationships. And, you know, your reputation really precedes you and you need to be aware of that. Um, and so sometimes I think, you know, people can kind of fight short-term battles, but it might hurt them in the long run. Like it's really, you kind of have to look at your approach. And I think, you know, my impression is that I have a a good reputation in the sports industry. And, and I think what people would say about me um, is that I'm very tough, but I'm very fair and I'm very direct. 
So I'm not one of these people that comes in and wants to start high and get low or start low and get high. Like, here's the deal. This is what it is. And it's easy to do that when you have existing relationships with people. And you won't have existing relationships with every negotiation you walk into. But over time, and because sports really at the end of the day is a very small industry, um, I feel like that paved the way to have more direct conversations. There were very few negotiations that I was ever involved in that just dragged on and on and on and on. Like, I wanna just get to the end point. Can we get there? I know what the client can do. You guys have to decide if this is what works for you. And hopefully it's a win-win for both sides. And I think if you approach it as a win-win for both sides, I'm not trying to screw anybody. I'm not trying to, you know, just make them pay. And like, <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it, it needs to be good for both parties. Um, and obviously I always have the, you know, my clients, the brands, you know, first and foremost in my head and, but at the end of the day, I think everybody can feel good if it's a win-win. You then went on to something called Engine Shop. Yes, I did. Which was not motorsports, but uh, <laughs> similar to what you had been doing. But in what ways was Engine Shop different than Sage? Um, I would say, well, it's funny that you mentioned it wasn't motorsports because I remember initially like getting some calls into our office about whether or not we could fix cars. They're <laughs> 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 like, nah, that's not really what we do. <laughs> um, it came together with um, a, a couple of guys that I had known previously, some through, um, some just through sports and some through Omnicom and formed, you know, this agency that was about consumer engagement. So yes, it was experiential, but obviously as digital and social came into the picture, I would definitely say that Engine Shop was more at the forefront of that kind of integration, um, not having it be an afterthought. Because where we got to very quickly was sometimes the digital or the social was actually the lead idea and potentially the experiential came on the back end of it versus what was going on when I first went to Engine Shop is for most companies and most brands, it was like, oh, okay, well, we got to add digital and social onto the end of this sponsorship. You know, I would say that um, Engine Shop was definitely at the forefront of, of that kind of thinking in terms of consumer engagement and that it always didn't need to look the same all the time. And just really good creative, um, you know, definitely leveraging more lifestyle into more traditional activities, you know, just things that people hadn't seen before, maybe pushing the boundaries for some traditional companies. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was at a time, you know, you know, Mercedes is still a client at Engine Shop as well. And pushing the boundaries, even when they launched, you know, their entry-level vehicles that were $30,000, they had to reach a target that they had never marketed to before. And it was really pushing them outside of their comfort zone and, and doing that with a lot of brands, not just them, um, but getting them to see, you know, you can't just keep looking at business in the same way. So I would definitely say um, the digital and social, and then also at the time, you know, uh, marketing to millennials. There was a lot of experience in the company with um, spirits brands, which obviously target that uh, demographic. And so a lot of work um, with millennials as well. You were the president of Sage and then you were a partner at Engine Shop. 
Yep. How would you describe your leadership style? Um, my leadership style is I am a person, I, I am a perfectionist. I will admit that. Um, <laughs> I have very, very high standards when it comes to, um, we're in a service business. So I'll start with that. And that's something that we always need to remember on the agency side is we are there to service. It is not about us. It is about them. Because the moment you start thinking it's about us or me and you start believing your own press, you are not going to do a good job for your clients. And I was always, I harped on that with people. The other thing that I always harped on with people is there's no job too small, especially when you, when you work in experiential. Um, I have no problem going to an event and taking out the trash or cleaning a bathroom if that's what's required. So there's no one on my staff that should not feel the same way. I mean, the job is the job and we all need to do it. Um, but I'd say, you know, I push people. I have exceptionally high expectations, but I think that every person that has worked for me will probably admit to the fact that I put higher expectations on myself than I put on them. So I'm not asking you to do anything that I wouldn't do a hundred times over or probably wouldn't even go farther. Um, it, I think that that, I believe that if you ask most people who have worked for me would say, they would say they learned a lot working for me. Now, what a lot is, <laughs> I, I don't know exactly, but I definitely think that people would say that they learned a lot from me. Um, and, you know, it's a balance, you know, you always want to say, oh, but we want it to be fun. To me, the fun comes from job well done, from teamwork, from rowing the boat in the same direction and having the biggest smile on your client's face or their customer's faces, you know, getting great feedback. Um, you, that's the thing that I think really sort of builds a culture of, of just smart and just smart, good people. And that's what I like to surround myself. And I'll also say that I am, I'm very good at surrounding myself with people who can do jobs that I just am not good at, or I don't think I'm good at. I don't do not need a hundred clones of myself <laughs> at all. I don't believe in that kind of management style. I want people that are, are good at a, a variety of different things that can either complement what I do, or maybe just do the things that I don't really want to do. Because <laughs> sometimes when you get this far in your career, there are some things you don't actually want to do. <laughs> so if I am fortunate, I can actually surround myself with people um, that are just very talented and are, like I said, they're not clones of me at all. So, so that's what you're looking for on your team. Mm -hmm. How do you then go out and recruit the clients, the people that you're working for, first of all, and, and the brands that you're going to be working with? What's that process like? Uh, once again, you know, a lot of it at this point for me is relationships and recommendations from relationships. I, I would tell you, I mean, I had done business development for Engine Shop for a couple of years. And when they first, because uh, we were acquired by Bruin Sports Capital in 2015. And when they came in and they said, Jennifer, you know, we want you to do business development. I looked at them and I was like, are you crazy? <laughs> but in, in essence, I had been doing that all along. It wasn't just, it wasn't a label that I ever put on myself because I do not consider myself a salesperson. I, 
I hate sounding insincere. Um, and I do feel sometimes salespeople sound insincere and I just, it makes me cringe to even think about myself doing that. Um, but once again, what was funny about it is as I got into it, you know, they said, we need you to do it. And of course, team Blair, okay, I'll do it begrudgingly. Um, what I found was that I was certainly better at it than I thought I would be. Um, but once again, I used sort of the same tactics. It was relationships. It was recommendations through relationships. I am hardly ever going to be that cold calling person, although I probably am a little more comfortable at it now. But once again, I'm an authentic person. You know, what you see is what you get. And so um, I don't ever want to come across as insincere. And I'm always exceptionally careful to make sure I don't say something that um, maybe a client wants to do, but we don't have the capabilities to do it. I will never tell somebody something they want to hear. Um, and I'll give an example in this field you work in. People will say, well, do you do PR? And I'm like, no. <laughs> we don't do PR, don't want to do PR, but we have a number of PR agencies that we'd be happy to recommend you to. Um, but it's just, it's not an area, it's not an area we do. And I don't like it when I see companies out there saying, oh yes, we can do this and we can do this and we, and you know, they can't. And maybe that goes back to the fact that I'm a perfectionist because I don't want to fail and I don't want to fail them. So for me, I would rather, it doesn't mean you can't broaden your horizons and learn because we all have as technology has developed. Um, but at the same time, I think that uh, doing what you do well is important and not trying to be everything to everyone is also important. It's then a similar type of scouting out process to find the right opportunities for the brands you're working with. Mm -hmm. What have you learned over the years from that piece of it to winding up in that room talking about the naming rights for the Superdome to aligning with different tournaments or events? How do you uh, identify those? Well, it really depends on the organization. Um, you know, I would say 20 years ago, there was a lot of, well, our CEO wants to do this, so we're going to do it. Okay, well, that doesn't really fly that as, as much anymore. It still flies, but not as much anymore. And to me, um, it's data-driven. It is business-driven. Because once you start getting into what I personally like or what this executive personally likes, it becomes very difficult. And it, it doesn't mean you can't measure things and you can't make something work, but I would be much more inclined to let the data and their budgets drive the decision. So at the end of the day, and I've said this to a number of companies, um, you know, they really want to be in golf. Okay. Um, I'm just making, I'm just using this as an example and not even using a company as an example, but you know, so-and-so really wants to be in golf. Okay. Well, what's your budget? Well, our budget is $1.5 million. Okay. So you want to be in golf. Why do you want to be in golf? Well, the demographics are great. I was like, okay, well, you don't have enough money. So if you want those demographics and actually if you want better demographics, go to professional tennis because you are going to get way more bang for your buck, but you have to look at it logically. And at the end of the day, you might still do golf because that's what they want to do. But as a consultant, what's really important is to at least try to get to the right business decision. And for whatever reason, if they want to go a different way, great. 
we'll go do it. Well, I'll, I'll do whatever you tell me to do, but I am going to give you my best advice. And if you tell me what you're looking for and it's this demographic or it's this kind of result or this kind of media or whatever it is, I am going to give you the best advice that I can, but it may not be exactly what you had your heart set on. As you grow, you know, you started off Mercedes tennis as things grow and you're adding different things for Mercedes, adding different clients. How do you instill for both you and your team, the right mechanisms to balance out what you're doing so that everybody's getting their necessary attention. That one client isn't getting lost in, in the shuffle because there's so much going on with another client or other clients. Yeah, I think, um, I definitely think that that can be a challenge. Um, and it's, once again, it goes back to surrounding yourself with people that you have confidence in. And I was really lucky to find some people, um, you know, sort of at the, the level that was right. I hate to say this, the level is right below me, but if you're looking at an org chart, that's what it looks like. Um, that I literally could, you know, put my hands over my ears and close my eyes and la, 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 and I wouldn't have to worry. You know, I knew it was going to get done. Um, and finding those people, I, I'm not going to say is hard because there's a lot of them, but you know, that somebody who's going to represent and sort of the style and the manner and the philosophy that I have, um, you know, it's, those aren't always the easiest people to find, but I have been very lucky to work with a few of them who've gone on to either to other businesses or other agencies and, you know, and they're very successful. Um, so I think that that's the key to it, but it is hard if you have sort of, the 800 pound elephant, you know, you have a massive client. And then from a financial standpoint, you have a bunch of clients that don't really sniff that other big elephant. Um, it becomes a little bit difficult to manage, but at the same time, you know, that's why you have to hire good people, you know, because at the end of the day, if I am a face and I have success growing the business, then I have to make sure that I am out there and everybody has to feel special and everybody has to feel like they're number one. So I have to make sure that the teams are in place, um, that they constantly feel like that. And it is a, a, it becomes a 24 hour a day job. I mean, when you are in this kind of client service, it does, because if a client calls me at 11 o'clock at night, I'm picking up the phone. It doesn't matter. I'm picking it up. So, um, yeah, I would say that that's good people. I like good people. With that team, there's a lot of things you have to do. We talked a little bit about identifying opportunities. What do you do to stimulate idea generation? Because so much of this is creative, finding a new way to do it. There's thousands of events every year. You're looking for a way to really stand out in, in that crowded marketplace. What do you do to get ideas cranked out from your team? Well, I personally go running. <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, for me, ideas always come to me when I'm running. Uh, but that's not exactly how it works. I don't make everyone go running. <laughs> that's um, not part of the application? No, it isn't. It's not. I mean, I am a bit, a bit of a physical fitness nut, but no, it is not an obligation. Um, you know, it's funny, but this, this actually goes back to... Um, what I said before in surrounding yourself with people that are better than you at certain things. And I am not sort of by nature, a creative, I am logic 
to, I've been tested <laughs> to the point where I was tested once with this. It wasn't like a Myers-Briggs. It was something different. I was tested to the point once where when I walked into the room, the head of HR, it was at actually a GMR, did this test on me. And he said, hello, Dr. Spock. And I didn't know what he was talking about because I didn't, I knew I took this test, but I didn't know what the results were going to look like. And he said, I've never met anyone who uses logic more in business to make a decision than you. So he called me Dr. Spock from then on, which I thought was kind of, but it, it, it's actually fitting. But I, um, I definitely think when it comes to your teams, you have people that are just naturally they were born creatives and they're very different than me. And sometimes I don't understand them um, and I don't understand how their brain works, but I admire them tremendously uh, because it's a skill that I don't, I mean, I work hard to be good at, but I don't know how you technically make yourself more creative. Um, but also people who have um, certain personal passions about a topic. So you may have people on your team that aren't technically creatives, but if for some reason um, action sports is a personal passion of theirs, they should be involved in the discussion, whether they're creative or not, whether they work on this client or not. So it's really about integrating the true creatives with people who have a passion or an interest in a topic. Um, and then usually me going for a few runs <laughs> and somehow <laughs> we, end up, uh, we end up with some good stuff. <laughs> Do you find that your brain is always thinking in these terms and in your work life terms, even when you're out at another game, another event, a party, a concert, always kind of looking to see what's what everybody else is doing? Do you ever switch that off or is it always information flow? Keep it coming. I would say that I'm good at switching off. I intentionally do not talk about work at home. Well, now that I work at home, but, <laughs> but you Makes know what a I mean? Harder. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, I don't get into discussions with my family about work. I, there's, a, there's a lot that goes on, and I just feel like it's an easy way to keep it separated. But there's no questions, and particularly as my kids have gone through and, and grown up being athletes and you know, my daughter is a volleyball player. You know, we go to national level tournaments all over the United States. And I look at sponsors. I look at their boots. I was like, whoa, they need to change this. Oh, you know, like, and it's funny. So I do, I definitely do look, but I try to just sort of keep it to myself. <laughs> um, but you're right. The brain never stops working, but I, I make a concerted effort to shut it off. So... After Engine Shop, you're now with something called Tribe. What is that? Well, Tribe is really just me. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is a marketing consultancy that I opened that sort of focuses on um, really a lot of the things that we talked about in terms of the consulting space, whether it's you know sponsorship evaluation, negotiation, even ideation. And, um, and also business development, because whether, you know, maybe a brand doesn't need it, but a rights holder might need business development help. Um, and I'm just a person who, since I've been in this business for a long time, I've been at so many, you know, major events, I just have a lot of relationships. So, you know, it's one of those things, if somebody wants help on business development, my Rolodex becomes their Rolodex. And, you know, like I said, I pride myself on relationships and, um, 
I, I don't mind opening that up and in, you know, working for somebody in that capacity, the concept of tribe is a little bit, um, besides just me, I do have a sort of a collective of exceptionally talented people that I have, have either worked for me or have been clients of mine previously, that if there is a piece of business that requires either more um, than I can handle or a different skill set, I have a, a group of people that can assist me. Um, but the whole concept is really changing. It's not an agency. I'm not building an agency. Don't want to build an agency. I feel like the concept is a bit outdated. It's very expensive. It has a lot of overhead. And so I am here to facilitate good people doing good work um, for great brands and rights holders and our clients. Um, so that's really the concept behind it. And I'm not trying to build something to sell. I'm like I said, I'm trying to do good work and, and hopefully do it at a better price um, than they could traditionally find. So, but it may not work for everybody. Um, you know, some people just depending on the size of the business, they need that, you know, 20 person account team that's full time. And, and that's, that's not what I'm trying to do at this point. Um, so that is tribe, but it's, it's just me. <laughs> there, there are a lot of companies that internalize a lot of these functions and have their own teams on their own payroll rather than going to an outside agency. Have you ever thought about going within a bigger company for this rather than being in that third party? Oh, a hundred percent. You know, I will say, um, it is what I have found is that if you don't make that jump to the brand side early on in your career, it becomes more difficult to do that um, because at some point you become looked at as the agency person. <laughs> um, and that might be a dirty word based on the way that sometimes people say it. <laughs> I try not to get offended at that though. Um, no, but I feel like, you know, with I would definitely be 100% open to it I like the diversity of clients um, that I have been able to work with over the years, whether that, like I said, it could be a brand, it could be a rights holder, it's been nonprofits. Um, I do like that diversity, but at the same time, it would be interesting to take a brand that really needs help. I think that that would probably be the most interesting thing was to take a brand that really needs help. It's great to go work for a wonderfully established brand, um, or maybe a brand that just needs to reinvent itself. I think that that's where you can sign a, kind of get that biggest inspiration, um, you know, to really make a difference. Because if a brand is thriving and wonderful, it's not that it's easy, and I would never say that. Um, but I don't know how much change you're really going to affect if it's not broke, why would you fix it type of thing? Not that you shouldn't evolve, but in some senses, there's a little bit of that where if somebody's new or somebody needs to reinvent themselves in the marketplace. I feel like that would be the type of brand organization that I would, I would actually love to be a part of. Very early in our conversation, you mentioned that as a swimmer at Arizona, you didn't have the opportunity to get a lot of experience in having jobs or things like that. But what benefits have you carried through your career that came from your experience as a student athlete? Well, it's funny that you say that um, because <laughs> honestly, when I, uh, 
this is, I will answer your question, but I will say that when I am looking at resumes of people and particularly young people who might just be coming out of college that don't have a lot of experience, it's great if you have a hundred internships. Um, but I mean, I know what most internships are like. Um, so I'm looking for sort of those other factors. I, I just because, you know, if I work in the golf business, I don't need you to have golf business experience for me to hire you. I am looking for character traits um, that tell me, you know, more about the kind of employee you'll be, you know, the kind of work ethic you'll have, the kind of initiative you'll have. Could you be a team player? Those are the types of things that I look for. And I will say that when I'm looking at resumes, um, I do look if somebody was an, was an athlete in college or at any point, but really in college, because it's, you have two jobs. Well, you have a full-time job and you're a student because being an, being a, an athlete in college is a full-time job. It is a lot to juggle. It was a lot to juggle when I did it. It's even more to juggle now based on what I see. And to me, this is a person who can prioritize, they can organize, they can work, you know, they can be part of a team. Um, it's, and even if you're, you're a tennis player, I'm using that as an example because it's an individual sport. When you go to college, you're on a team for a first time. You know, so there's a lot of skills that I feel like, and, and I'm not just saying I only hire athletes, but I do look at that as a factor um, because I think it tells me a lot about them as a person. So, um, so those are the things that I would say have really helped me you know, there is a drive and it doesn't mean you had to be the greatest athlete, um, but there is a drive and there is a dedication and you gave up a lot and I missed parties and I missed proms and I missed all these different things. But what did I gain? I traveled around the world, you know, before going to college, I had a lot of different experiences and I, I prioritized and I organized and I got good grades and I would even say a little off topic when I'm looking at those resumes, I don't really even look at where a person went to college. What, because I don't know what your personal circumstances are. I don't know what your economic circumstances are. What I want to see is, did you go and did you finish? Because you started something and then you finished something. So whether that was at Harvard or that was at, a school I have, I literally got, there's a letter in the mail today from a school called Life University. I, it was to my daughter. It was about volleyball. I literally never heard of this university before, but even if it was Life University, um, I, I want to know that you started something that you finished it, you know, and I think that that is, that's just telling about someone's um, personality and their character. So you have your own experience as an athlete. Your two kids are high-level athletes. One's going into college, one soon will be. And you've had this career in sports marketing. So I feel like you're uniquely positioned to talk a little bit about this, the name, image, and likeness, and what that could mean for college athletes, but also for brands and companies around college athletics. What are your initial impressions? And obviously that's a a thing that is still not really well-defined in, in a lot of places? 
Uh, it scares me. I, I will be totally honest with you. Um, and the reason why it scares me, having been an athlete and still involved in athletics, um, is if you watch athletes come out of college, okay, I, I don't care what sport it is, but anything that has a professional um, league where you can make a lot of money, so a basketball player, a football player, whatever, and they're coming out of college at 22, sometimes 23 years old. They've been very insulated. A lot of times they don't make good financial decisions, at least for a while. Sometimes they're surrounded by people who don't help them make good financial decisions. And I say to myself, what's going to happen when you're doing that at 18? I... I that scares me because I feel like there's going to be a lot of predators out there that are going to just get kids into a bad situation. And I, I think it's unrealistic to think that the universities can police that. Uh, the universities are there for a lot of different reasons, but to then add policing this kind of behavior to make sure their athletes are protected. I, I think that's a lot to ask. Um, so that part really scares me. I would say the other thing is, um, and, and to be perfectly honest, particularly now, we are a country of the haves and the have nots. And there is a great economic disparity going on in our country. And so if I come in and I'm, you know, Zion, and I sign a multi-million dollar contract, I am living an entirely different life than my teammates. I don't know what that's going to do to the team. So I'm looking at it from this perspective, just from an athletic perspective. Not that they're, I, I understand the logic behind, um, the universities make so much money. They're making a lot of money off these kids. What does the perfect situation look like? I have to sort of dissect it down into different pieces and parts to figure out what makes sense in my head. Um, that sort of have and have not situation with 18, 19, and 20-year-olds, that scares me. I think it could really destroy what goes on on the field, court, whatever, um, you know, field you happen to play on. I think that that is going to be a source of contention among the team and their teammates. Um, I think you could have contention in, in, you know, you work in tennis, you know, who is probably the most commercially successful tennis player ever as a female, Anna Kornikova, and she never won a tournament. And then do we get in because a, in a, for females, because they look a certain way, do we, are we then capitalizing on that side of it? And then this person makes a bunch of money. Maybe they're not that good. And then their teammates are pissed, you know, <laughs> like, so I go back to the sort of the purity of the athletic side of it. And I wonder how it will it will affect the dynamics of a team, and I cannot imagine it's going to be positive. Um, and maybe for the most athletes, it's not really going to be that big of a deal. You know, you need to probably be at a big-time school in a big-time sport 
Um, but you know, people are creative. You have, you know, 12 year old kids who are YouTube stars making, you know, bank on stuff. And I'm like, why do I care if you're eating pizza? Um, like it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I think there's opportunities for a lot of people to, to make money, but there's going to be certain people that just make a tremendous amount. And I, I don't know how they're going to regulate and protect them um, because sometimes it's, you know, it's not their family who's necessarily protecting them. You know, I mean, you've seen that in athletics a million times over. Um, I, I don't know. It, it concerns me, you know, should there be regulations on how much, you know, I do feel like the university has to be involved from protecting these athletes I feel like they're opening Pandora's box and um, I hope they make decisions to keep the athletes protected as well as the teams in general. You know, no one wants, I mean, going to college should be like the greatest thing you ever do and the most fun you ever have, but playing college sports is the single best time you're ever going to have in your life. Cause it's, even if you go into the pros, that's a job. You know, they're paying you a lot of money and you got to deliver. Um, but I, I worry about this. And I also think that people have just forgotten the value of an education. And I think that this is encouraging people not to put as much value on the scholarship to begin with. You know, my son is going to the University of Richmond, which is a very, you know, expensive school. And when you're paying that tuition and that room and board as a family or, you know, student loans or however somebody accomplishes it, it's a lot of money over four years. It's a lot of money. And have we just decided that there's no value in that? I, I don't know. I, I get that. I get it's not fair the way it is. I, I wouldn't say that it is fair. It's not fair. I feel like it has to be regulated in some way. And I don't know what that looks like right now. It is certainly going to be something to watch with interest over the next few years. Yeah. For those who are not going professional as an athlete, but looking to get into our industry uh, and, and whether it's in the marketing side of it, the media side of it, just the sports business in general, what would be some advice you'd give to someone just starting out or early, you know, still in their twenties getting into this industry? Um, I definitely think that certainly while you're in school, whether it be summers or, you know, whenever, even right after school, you know, volunteering is a big thing. Um, there's just, you know, maybe I've been around golf and tennis and things like that a little bit too long, but there's always ways to volunteer, to build relationships. It's not like no matter what event you volunteer for, the organization is so big that you're not going to be able to make an impression. Trust me, people see it. People see people that work hard. Um, yeah, and you, you know, you make yourself known and you introduce yourself and you're friendly and you're all those things. Um, but once again, kind of going back to what I said before about um, the way I manage is, you know, no job too small. You know, that's how you make an impression with people is I don't care, you know, you know what you ask me to do, trash, bathroom, whatever it happens to be, absolutely a volunteer, I'll do it. Um, and I, and it, it's, and then that leads to building relationships. And that's how you can then when you graduate or, you know, after you've done whatever you're doing, you make that phone call and that person 
from that, you know, that tournament director or whoever, they're going to know who you are. And they're, they may say, Hey, we don't have anything, but I know somebody, this is a business of relationships, make as many good impressions on people as you can. And then they will help you. I am always happy to help people um, that I know, you know, are, are great people that work hard, um, that put in a lot of effort. I'm always happy to help people. I'm always happy to make phone calls. Um, but you got to show me, you know, you got to show me you're worth picking up that phone because I don't want to look bad. <laughs> so if I'm going to recommend you, you're going to have to show me something. And I, I don't think it's hard to do that. So I would say volunteering is, is a very good way. Um, but there's, you know, there's also a lot of internships, but in some respects, I feel like volunteering is even better than that. I've seen in, in getting ready to talk to you, I've seen you reference this a few times. What was the Nelson Mandela Children's Charity event and why did it leave such an impact on you? Well, it might have left such an impact on me is because I flew from my wedding to that event. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, With so your the, husband? Yeah. So he played in it. Okay. Um, okay, so... We got married and the next day we were on a plane to South Africa and uh, we went to Cape Town and went to this event that he was asked to participate in. And, and we should identify who your husband is. Yeah, as opposed to like <laughs> leaving him to fantasy man. Miscellaneous it, guy. <laughs> yes. So uh, Malavia Washington, former professional tennis player, and he was asked to participate in this event. And it was you know, sort of this star-studded cast. It was you know, Andre Agassi and Boris Becker. And, you know, it was, it was a great Todd Martin. It was a great group of guys. Um, their, their significant others came with them and it was an event for Nelson Mandela's charity. And first of all, just meeting him was beyond, I mean, there are just no words. Um, but it was very funny because at first, we all got to meet him privately before this big 500, 700-person event happened. And we went up and we got our pictures taken with him. And obviously, he was briefed on all of us and he knew some things. And he knew that Mal and I had just gotten married. And he oh, was wow. giving Mal a hard time, like, what took you so long? So Mal and I were together six years before we got married. And he's like, well, why did you wait so long? And he was literally giving him a hard time. And I mean, it, I mean, of course, you know, part of his job and what he does, obviously, was, you know, he's going to be briefed on everybody. But the fact that he was giving Mal such a hard time about it, I certainly appreciate it. I was like, yeah, why'd you wait so long? <laughs> um, but I would say the thing that was, that was really funny to me was we went, then went onto this big tent um, that must have had at least 500 people in it. And it was individual tables and it was a dinner and we were seated at his table and all of the tennis players and their um, spouses or girlfriends were there as well. And there was all this noise going on at the tent. And um, Nelson Mandela speaks very deliberately and somewhat quietly. So there's all this noise going around in the tent. And if you would have taken a picture at our table, he would be speaking. And I think all of us were staring at him literally with our mouths open. Every single person at the table, we were just so focused on what he was saying. Um, and 
it was just an incredibly special experience. Yes, I had just gotten married, so that made it special. Um, being able to meet such a great man was incredible. We went on a safari after the event was over. So it, overall, it was just, well, that was my honeymoon. I got to meet Nelson Mandela on my honeymoon. So come on. <laughs> so. I was just going to say, so does that count as your honeymoon or did Mal have to take you somewhere else after? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> he counted that as our honeymoon. Come on now. You know Mal. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a great story, though. That's yeah. very cool. Yeah. Uh, I close every episode with the set pieces, six questions mm-hmm. that I ask everybody who, who is kind enough to join me on the podcast. And I start asking about podcasts or newsletters. What are your kind of daily or weekly resources of information? Um, I would say that on a weekly, a daily basis, um, definitely publications, whether Harvard Business Review, Ad Age, um, SBJ, which is a staple. Um, those are the main, I'm always attempting to learn about sort of leadership and culture and just in essence, how to do what I do better, which is not necessarily always knowing every single thing about every single sport. I'd rather improve myself as a person and as a leader. Um, so I sort of gravitate to the types of things that educate me more. And it gives a little bit of separation from like submerging yourself in your job 24 hours a day. <laughs> so. the, the balance is key. The balance. Uh, who are your most valuable files? The social media posts that you don't want to miss? Okay, well, this goes back to my separation. <laughs> <laughs> That's totally fair. Um, it would be, it would be sites like I don't know if you ever see the dodo. It's about animals. Okay. So you got to follow the dodo, okay? <laughs> because it's just very uplift, uplifting. Every time you see a story on the dodo, you are going to just feel good because someone has saved an animal, and I just have a special place in my heart for those types of things. Um, but also there's another site that I follow called daily transformations. And sometimes that's just, you know, things about life that just kind of put a smile on your face and things like that. Um, you know, but then from a news standpoint, it's the ESPNs, it's the New York times. I follow the Atlantic very closely. Um, but I do try to distract myself, um, from not being submerged. I have to have a balance and, you know, whether it's the animals or there's another one um, called Fantastic Things in This World. And it's just places you have, you probably haven't seen or just images, you know, just beautiful images of the tulips in Denmark or, you know, it, it's just one of those things. It's like, oh, I'd like to be there right now. And then it kind of lets you escape for like three seconds. Um, but those are the types of things that I like to follow. <laughs> So that's great. Then I'm really curious to hear this one. What are a couple of books you'd recommend? <laughs> I don't know if you're going to go for the fun, playful, or back to that leadership thing. <laughs> um, I would say that books. Um, I I do I do the same thing in general. I try to read books as an escape. I have a few favorite authors. Um, Nelson Demille is one of my favorite authors, but particularly his early books like Charm School, um, Gold Coast. I mean, he's run, written a lot of books, but I'm a big fan. He's kind of snarky, um, but you always learn something, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely read a lot of Vince Flynn. 
another author that I just, every time a book comes out, I read it because it's just exciting and you get to follow a character. Um, but I would say if you can stand the language, um, read Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. But it, it's, the language gets a little much. Um, there's a lot of F-bombs in it. Um, <laughs> but you want to talk about a person, you know, Navy SEAL and just person came from a you know, very difficult background who pushed themselves to points that no person typically pushes themselves and sort of what the human body and spirit can endure um, I think that that just, like I said, the language was a, was a little tough um, just because it was so repetitive. Not that I don't drop the F-bomb, but when you hear it like every other sentence, it gets a little much. Um, I think that's a great book. And then I definitely loved Michelle Obama's book, Becoming. I just, I, I just felt really good after I read that. And it was just, I think probably the most interesting thing to me about that book, and, and this is nothing to do with politics, um, but what a woman had to do um, who had an exceptionally su successful career was on a very good trajectory and what you give up um, when your spouse wants to go through this process and you have a family. Um, and I think that that is what struck me about the book more than anything was kind of the decisions that she made and the choices that she made um, in order to support her husband and to do what's right for her family I, I just found that very moving. I couldn't do it. <laughs> I'll just say that. <laughs> so, What are you streaming? What are you guys watching right now? Um, you know, I'm a big fan of documentaries. And so I, you know, and a lot of times they are sports related, but they don't, they don't necessarily have to be. I was very uh, disturbed by Athlete A. Uh, exceptionally disturbed, um, you know, being in being an athlete, a female athlete, you know, and, and swimming, you know, which is what I did, they have their share of problems. And I, I feel it's only going to get worse and going to get more exposed. I mean, I, I know some things about it. Um, I've had experiences in this in the sport. But to see sort of that systematic, deliberate abuse was shocking, you know, by USA Gymnastics. It was, it was, it was sick. I mean, it was, it was nothing short of sick. And I think, you know, as someone who, you know, I certainly didn't train as much as an Olympic gymnast, although I might have. Um, the amount of time and effort and everything that goes into it um, to just read how Dr. Nasser um, had manipulated these girls by being the nice guy and he was like the only person they felt like they could talk to her and then he exploited them and then that the organization itself covered it up ignored it it was so disturbing i mean i had to watch it but i i think that that just uh, that one kind of did a number on me i um, I love anything, you know, the, the free solo kind of movies, surf documentaries, all those types of things. I'd say for fun things, I like um, the Kaminsky method is pretty funny mm -hmm. on Netflix. Um, the Good Place, which I knew used to be on network. Um, I had never seen it. And then somebody told me to watch it and I became fascinated at how demented it was. <laughs> so those are the types of things. Once again, I just, I try to, um, I like to laugh. 
So even though athlete A was certainly no laughing matter, I, um, I do try to entertain myself. I prefer comedy. What's your favorite sports memory as a kid? You know, I think for me, um, because I was involved in sports so much, it would probably be like a personal experience. I did have an international trip when I was swimming where at the time, um, Yugoslavia was still a country. Um, so we went to Italy and Yugoslavia and um, competed in some just completely bizarre venues, like in the middle of the Adriatic Sea, you know, they set up a course and things like that. Um, so I'd say things like that, that had to do with swimming, competing at junior nationals. I remember my first junior nationals that happened to be at the University of Florida. I will never forget it as, you know, and I, I was very young at the time. So I would say that I gained just so many good memories from all those types of things. Like I said, while I missed out some, on some of the traditional things that kids get to do, um, it 100% was worth it for the things that I got to do in exchange. My final question, do you keep your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? <laughs> No, <laughs> no, there's one exception. Um, no, and it's funny because most people I know, um, no, most people I know keep them. And I just don't happen to for whatever reason. But there is one event I keep my credentials from. Do you, do you want to guess what it is? Well, it feels like it'd be too easy to say the, the Nelson Mandela event. No. No. I keep hmm. my credentials from the masters every year. Uh, okay. I, it's, um, it's one of those, it, it is my all time favorite sporting event. Um, it is, it's just such a special place and it's such a special event, the way they do it, just the way it looks, the environment out there. Um, television doesn't do it justice. I mean, as much as they try, it is absolutely spectacular. And that is the only event that I keep my credentials from. So I, I'm not, a, I don't hold on to that stuff. <laughs> Mal would, cause he's a hoarder. <laughs> <laughs> I'm constantly throwing things away. <laughs> so, but now where are those master's credentials? Are they just in a drawer somewhere? Do you they're have just, they're actually in my closet, just sitting on one of my counters in my closet. I don't know why okay. they're there, but I keep a lot of things. And then I always know where they are. So I see them. So there you go. Yeah. Well, Jennifer, I really appreciate the time. I enjoyed the conversation, learned quite a bit, and uh, I thank you for taking the time to join me today. Thanks, Pete. I take notes on what the guests are saying to help me write the intros for each episode, and I honestly felt like I had transcribed most of this conversation that I had with Jennifer. I hope you got a lot out of this as I did. I want to thank Jennifer for her time, and thank you for listening. Please take a moment to leave a review wherever you do access podcasts, and if you liked it, tell a friend. Don't forget, you can find more information on what we discussed and a picture of Jen Mal and Nelson Mandela in the show notes on credentialsonly.com. And while you're there, drop us your email address so we can slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share. Mike Michet edits Credentials Only, which is a Holter Media production.